Welcome to the Callcast and to what we believe is the northernmost podcast in the world. Thank you for listening to this podcast series, which will give you an insight to the exciting research that goes on at the University Centre in Svalbard, or UNIS as we like to call it. You will meet professors and students who are passionate about their cold climate research and learn more about the Arctic, both as a field of study, but also as a place people call home. My name is Maria Filippa Rossi and I'm your host today. Today we are joined by Aronima Sen. Aronima is an associate professor in the biology department and uh, looking at her CV, there are so many exciting things. There are studies in the United States, fieldwork in Tonga and Western Africa, postdoc work in France, Tromsø and Bode, and uh, now you're here in Svalbard. Welcome, Aronima. Thank you, Maria. We'll uh, start today's chat with uh, a dive, uh, literally, into the work you have been involved with for the Nansen Legacy Project. Um, the Nansen Legacy is a novel and holistic research corporation that unites 280 researchers, students and technicians from 10 Norwegian research institutions. And what has your role been in, uh, in this project? So I was part of the Bentos team, and the Bentos is basically a fancy word for the seafloor and the animals that live on the seafloor. It's actually kind of crazy, the experiments that we did on the Nansen Legacy cruises, so that's when we go out to sea, because what we were trying to do was measure the rate at which the seafloor and everything that lives on the seafloor consumes oxygen, mm-hmm. because that basically then converts to how much carbon dioxide is produced. And that carbon dioxide then is the building blocks for food in the ocean, which is, of course, then at the surface. So kind of closes the loop between carbon being transferred from the surface down to the seafloor and then back up to the surface again. And so what we had to do was take these large chunks of the seafloor on every cruise and every site that we went to and then subsection those and then put them in the cold room in the dark for 24 or 48 hours straight and then measure the oxygen in the water in those cores every six hours and then we get a rate at which oxygen was consumed and it was a very ambitious project and only possible because of this Nansen Legacy project because we had the funding to go out every season to do this. Normally it's the sort of work that you do only in the summer because you know you have sea ice blocking the way most of the time. Yeah and also just the number of replicates that we had so basically you know within an experiment you don't want to do it once you want to repeat it because one one time if you do it, it might just go wrong. You might get weird results. So we had to do it more than once. And then we also tried to make sure that we have different treatments. So kind of like a baseline rate, but also what would happen if we increase the temperature because we're expecting temperature to increase in the Arctic? And what will happen if we add more food? Because that's another thing we're kind of expecting that might happen when the sea ice melts. There's going to be more of the stuff growing in the water column at the surface, producing more food and then more food reaching the seafloor. So you wanted to basically see the effects that these two things would have temperature and more food on these rates and how that will affect how carbon will be cycled in the ocean. And the Nansen Legacy Project, it started in 2018 and will run until uh, 2024. And um, that means that fieldwork time is coming to an end and more time is now focused on um, on the results. But in uh, November last year, there was a, what's called Closing the Gap 
cruise. What did you do there? So that actually was a slightly different role that I had. Um, so we didn't do these crazy experiments, luckily, because that was really time consuming. Uh, so in this case, we went to the fjords around Svalbard. And what I did was that I collected the animals that came up in the benthic trawl. So this is this large net that you take along the seafloor and everything that's living on the surface on the seafloor gets collected and comes up. And then we divided them based on the kinds of animals that they are. And what we're going to do now is look at their tissues to see what they're eating. So specifically what we look at is the carbon and the nitrogen inside their tissues. And that gives us an idea of what they're eating. So are they carnivores? Are they at the top of the food chain? Or are they eating stuff that's falling down from the surface? We can basically get an idea of the whole food web of who's eating whom um, by looking at these carbon and nitrogen isotopes. You're, you're calling them animals. Like what, what size are we talking about? Yeah, what size? I guess... Um, I don't know, the size of like my hand or something. Okay. Although sometimes you get really big stuff. Like we got snow cramps that are really massive, like the size of a dinner plate. You said the cruise was around Spitsbergen. Is that where all the Nansen Legacy cruises have been or where no, have they gone? No, actually, usually most of the Nansen Legacy cruises are east of Svalbard. So we have a transect that goes north to south. So we start kind of just a little bit east and a little bit south of Svalbard. And then we go up further into like the central Arctic Ocean where the deep basins are. Where the answers are or the questions? Yeah, the questions. We know almost nothing, especially about what's on the seafloor over there in the deep Arctic basins. Literally, we know almost nothing. How how has it been being part of that project? Because the project has been also, it, one of its goals has been to educate tomorrow's Arctic experts and sort of get a new generation of polar scientists. How has it been being a part of that? It's been fantastic because like you said, you know, it was, um, it's a large project and they've hired many postdocs and PhD students of the next generation of polar researchers. So when I was part of Nansen Legacy, I was a postdoc. Uh, yeah, this last year I was of course here at UNIS as an associate professor, but I was hired in the project project as a postdoc. So it was a very big and important stepping stone in my career. And it is for a lot of the people in the project. And it's really, really amazing to see that, that there's a project that can support so many young scientists and that they can develop and build their careers uh, based on the fact that they have these cruises that can take them out and get them data that other people haven't been able to get because we have the money to go out, for example, every season mm. through this project. So uh, how do you take the samples from the seafloor? So there's a few different ways that we can do it. On the Nansen Legacy, what we were doing was either taking a box score or taking grabs. Um, and this is a box score is just a giant box that you send down from the ship. And it's just so big and heavy that it just sinks into the sediment and grabs a bunch of sediment and comes up. The grab is a little bit smaller and you need to actually put weights on it so that it sinks into the sediment. But it's kind of like a little claw and it has two windows and it just goes in, it grabs a bunch of sediment and then you bring it up. And then when it's on deck, you have a ton of sediment that you have to then sieve <laughs> and filter. And then we get mud all over the deck, which uh, everybody else, like all the other biologists, are terrified of the benthos team because they know that we're just going to get mud everywhere. What does it feel like? Well, I mean, it, does it have a different consistency from, from, I was going to say, normal mud or ha since it's been lying there for eternity? 
Well, there's actually all kinds of different <laughs> types of benthic mud or mud on the seafloor. And the geologists will probably go into a lot of detail about that. But uh, even for us, we can see so sometimes it's coarse and gravelly. Sometimes it's very fine. Um, we kind of joke that oh, this is like Arctic mud and we can make face packs with it. <laughs> that could be, a, could, could be an in- industry. <laughs> That's how we finance our next project. Yeah, except fantastic. <laughs> um, what are some of the, the challenges when being out at sea? Does everything go as planned? Nothing ever goes according to plan. You always have to be ready for the plan to just completely go south. And then you have to have plan A, B, C, D, all the way up to Z. Literally nothing goes to plan. But that's part of the challenge, and just but also part of the fun. You know, it really teaches you how to be an independent researcher. It teaches you how to be patient because if you just lose your cool, then it just makes things much worse. I mean, you're on a ship stuck with a few people, you know, you can't get away. So, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging, but I think it's also very rewarding because when you do get the samples you want, then it's like, oh, hallelujah, we have what we want. I'm interested in these samples. Uh, What can you expect or what do you expect when it comes up? I mean, it's always kind of like a... Yeah, a black box, you don't know, because at least this kind of sampling where you send something down from the ship and you don't have eyes on the seafloor, because of course there is something where you can use an ROV and you can see what you're sampling on the seafloor, but that's really fancy technology, which we mostly cannot afford. But in this case, it is always like a surprise. And we are just like sitting around and eagerly waiting, okay, when the crew brings the sample on board, what are we going to see? And the first thing is that we'll be peering into it and looking, oh, okay, we see this and we see that. And it's it's just always a surprise. You never know what to expect. What's the weirdest thing you've gotten? Weirdest or coolest, I guess... On this cruise, on the Closing the Gaps cruise, we actually got these giant isopods. Um, so I don't know if you have them in the woods here in Norway, but they're in the U.S. They're called pillbugs. Okay. They're these like, yeah, white. They're usually very small, maybe the size of like, yeah, your fingernail or something. But in the deep sea, they can get really, really huge. Um, some of them can get just massive, like even I don't know how big this is. <laughs> 30 to 40 centimeters. Yeah. But the ones on this cruise, like in the Arctic that we got, were about, yeah, the size of my hand, maybe. The length of my hand. But that's really big compared to something in the forest that you would see that's the size of a fingernail. And they're just, I don't know, they look kind of weird and creepy. They look like aliens. So, yeah, that was, I think, one of the coolest things. You say cruise. It sounds like it's a week's holiday with a drink in your hand, but it's really uh, it's really hard work, isn't it? Yeah, it's the opposite of a cruise, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you don't get any sleep because it's your one and only chance to get samples. And like I said, things go wrong. So then um, when you think, okay, now... I'm going to have rest time because this is going to do, we're going to do this. It's going to take this long and then it doesn't. And then you have to go to the next plan or switch to something else. So yeah, you end up working constantly. Um, yeah, but that's, that's, so that's what the cruise is. It's the opposite of a cruise as one would normally think. <laughs> on this closing, the gap cruise, uh, you basically worked the whole time to get the samples, but your colleagues were on a six hour on six hour off shift. Can you can you explain sort of how that works or why you do it? Why don't you just stay awake for 14 hours and sleep for 10? <laughs> well, that's what we do. So we were not on shifts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, our team was not on shifts. And the shift system works if you have... Um, enough people uh, to populate two shifts, enough experts on each group so that 
one person can take over for the other. But uh, we didn't have that. We had four people and there was so much work that we needed all four people at the same time. And plus it was me with some students. Mm -hmm. So they were learning. I was the only expert or, okay, I wouldn't say expert, but a more senior researcher on board for that field at least. And that, that, that's often the case when you go on cruises. Um, so I think the shifts are usually on these, um, the IMR cruises, which are more like government-sponsored work, mm. uh, where they have technicians and um, engineers and equal skill sets mm. on each uh, shift. So then you can have a switching back and forth. But usually that's not the case. Usually you have one or two people who have more tasks to complete than they can handle. And so then you just work when you have to work. Basically, okay, are we taking your samples? Then yes, then you're working to make sure your samples are being taken and then process them. And when you're done processing them is when you try to go and get some sleep. Mm. How, what's it like uh, bringing students along to this kind of field work? Uh, really good because usually they're very eager to learn because it's such a good experience for them. And yeah, I just, I'm thankful to have them because I need the help. I can't do everything myself. How does being a part of cruises sort of add to the excitement of your daily day work? Yeah, I guess it's just, uh, it's nice to have two lives in that sense because you have your office life where you're sitting in front of the computer all day or maybe in the lab uh, processing samples. And then you have this other aspect, which is where you go out to sea and it's a completely different atmosphere, different environment, different conditions, different experience. So it kind of, I guess, enriches the whole career and the job. Joining a cruise like this and then meeting new people from different institutions, how have you worked together? Or, or does all come uh, to the cruise with their own specific projects and, uh, and goals? Uh, usually everybody has specific uh, goals and tasks, but we're all working within a larger project. So like you said, for example, the Nansen Legacy Project, which we all have within the project uh, specific goals and that we're supposed to also complement each other. So we use each other's data because they should be connected. Um, yeah, for example, like I need data about the water column, even though I study animals on the seafloor, but I need to know example, I need to know, for example, what is the water temperature like or what is the salinity like? So it's the oceanographers who are collecting that data. So we need to uh, collect data, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And I think that's part of the whole cruise experience as well, is that there's this sense of all of us working towards one single goal, even though we have our own division of labor, you know, within that larger goal. You mentioned some of the initial things you do with the samples you've collected, but what do you do with them afterwards? It depends on what we want to study. Um, so if we're looking at, okay, who's there and how many of them, then we just go through them and count every single one of them. And then we have this nice big spreadsheet with lots of numbers as to, okay, this many species and how many of different species, how much they weigh. Um, then, yeah, in this case, when we're looking at the isotopes to look at what the animals are feeding on, then we, first of all, we freeze them and then we basically grind them up and put them in a machine to look at yeah, their carbon and nitrogen content and which isotopes or which versions of carbon and nitrogen they have. So it really depends on what you're doing, but it often ends up being quite destructive, I would say. So we're very careful about the samples we get. We want them to be perfect, but then we end up smashing them to bits, yeah. usually. <laughs> So you, you've been a part of the Nansen Legacy Project for a couple of years. What is your specialty? 
Right. So in the Nansen Legacy, like I said, I was working on these um, incubations, but that's not my specialty. So my specialty is actually a very different and special kind of seafloor ecosystem that is completely revolved revolves around chemicals that are coming out from the seafloor. So... And we're actually going to go out on a cruise in March to study this in, this, in the fjords around Svalbard. Uh, so what happens is that there's some locations where there's just chemicals seeping out from the seafloor. And then there's animals that have bacteria growing inside them. And those bacteria can feed on those chemicals. And then you have animals that feed on those animals. So then you have this entire ecosystem that revolves around these chemicals that are just coming out from the seafloor. And they're called chemosynthesis-based ecosystems. And this is different from photosynthesis-based ecosystems, which, you know, most of the world actually relies on photosynthesis for food production. But this is a chemical-based process, so this is called chemosynthesis, and that's what I actually study. And that's what I studied, um, for example, like you mentioned in some of my other research around Tonga as well. Chemicals, initially, it sounds very toxic. Is it a toxic environment? It is actually a toxic environment. That's a really good question. Because um, even though those chemicals um, are the lifeline, they're also toxic. Some of them at least are. And so the animals that live at these ecosystems have to be specialized and be able to deal with the toxicity of those chemicals. So they have to both use the chemicals and somehow also not get poisoned by them. Can, can we learn anything from that? Well, I would like to extend it to say, well, it tells us about life, not just on our planet, but also in the solar system, because, you know, where they think that where there possibly is life in the solar system right now or on other moons where there's not enough sunlight. And so they think that life is being sustained over there through these chemical processes. And we also think that some of these places is where life originated on our planet as well. That is very interesting and a, and a whole different story, but uh, we'll have to take that uh, next time. Thank you so much uh, for the chat, Arunima. It was a pleasure having you. The Coldcast is made by technician Simon Salomonsen-Jelle and uh, myself, Maria Filippo-Rossi. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.